Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, The Triumph of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22 and look at verse 5 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Ruling with Christ. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about politics. You know, I've heard it said that it's a blood sport, it's dirty business, takes good men and women and quickly corrupts them. Some people argue that it's the business of the rich and powerful making sure that they continue to maintain their position of advantage. Now, of course, it's always good form to criticize both politics and politicians. A very successful and famous businessman in my part of the world who said, smart people don't go into politics. But I guess putting it the other way around, he might have said, you know, dumb people go into politics, to which I can almost hear the jaded and disenchanted saying, amen, preach it, brother. And yet, the Bible makes it clear that God appoints rulers at his will. Romans 13 verse 4 calls the ruler God's servant for your good. Romans 13 demands that we be in subjection to rulers. That is, we are to willingly submit to those who are in office. And that's important, especially to those of us who live in a democracy. When someone is in office for whom we did not vote, we do well to remember those words. And furthermore, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions. And so while it is a sport in our culture to make sport of politicians, Christians are reminded to think more soberly about those who are in power. That's because, of course, we need lawmakers on earth. Lawmakers are God's gift to the human family. They restrain evil. They keep lawlessness at bay. Without law, people would break into our homes. Without law, we would be vulnerable to every form of unrighteousness. I know, I know. Sometimes lawmakers are found to be lawbreakers themselves, and the whole earth groans under that kind of an evil. Now, as we've studied Revelation and tracked the rise of the beast and the false prophet, we did see the horror of what happens when the man in power is called the man of lawlessness, and he's inspired by the ancient dragon. Well, praise God, we won't have politicians in heaven, right? Well, if you think that's true, I have some very bad news for you. According to our text, Revelation 22, verse 5, speaking of the age to come, says, And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Everything seems to be going well until we hear they will reign forever and ever. We will rule. We will govern forever. Well, what can that possibly mean? Now, before we answer that, let's discover if this is a solitary text or whether this idea is also found in other locations in the Bible. And it may surprise some of my hearers to discover this is a theme that's frequently repeated throughout the New Testament. Now, since we've already quoted Revelation 22, let's, let's look at what the rest of Revelation says. Revelation 2, 26 to 27, Jesus' message to the church of Thyatira includes these words. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. 
Now, that's a mouthful, but as we've seen, this text is most likely fulfilled in and through the millennial reign of Christ. There, the enemies will be ruled with a rod of iron, and there, the resurrected church will rule and reign with Christ. They will govern with him. But go forward to Revelation 3, verse 21. There's a word to the church in Laodicea. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, here's a reference uh, not to the Old Testament, but it seems to be a reference to the direct teaching that Jesus gave to the twelve. You know, in Matthew 19, verses 28 and 29, Jesus teaches his disciples, and that passage says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So notice two things. First, Jesus promises the 12 a role of prominence in judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But in Revelation, Jesus opens the privilege of reigning with him to anyone who's conquered. And second, Jesus seems to indicate that anyone who has sacrificed anything for his name in the gospel while here on this earth will receive a hundredfold return on that investment in heaven or in the life to come or in the new earth. We will come to the idea of governing over lands in a little bit. Now, let's go forward to Revelation chapter 5, halfway through verse 9 to verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, the text says, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, the idea is not only that we're saved by the blood of Christ, but that Christ bestows on his followers a role in which they govern the earth, the new or the renewed earth. Now, there are passages in Scripture outside of Revelation that speak of this way as well. As a matter of fact, there are many, so let's turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. There it says, If we endure, we also will reign with him. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Or as one commentator has pointed out regarding that verse, the Bible makes it plain that everything that belongs to Christ is also given to us people, with the exception, of course, of his divinity. And that includes his authority to rule. We, we rule with him. And it's overwhelming. And it's clear from the Bible that we will participate in some way with God's governance, not only of the new earth, but over all the works of his hands. And I'm going to say that must include the new heavens or the cosmos. And lest we think this is only a promise related to the millennium, as we've seen, Revelation 22, verse 5 speaking of the new heavens and the new earth and our final estate, says, we shall reign with him forever and ever, meaning a never-ending estate of governing over the works of God's hands. But how exactly are we to understand that? Can we be specific? Well, I think we can. Let's consider God's original intent in the creation. Back in Genesis 1, after God created man and the woman, he gives them their very first command. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, that is, have rulership or governance or authority over, 
the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as image bearers of God, the man and the woman and their offspring were to fill the earth and then to rule it, to govern it, and direct its affairs according to the designs of the Creator. And initially, we saw the expression to that, first in the naming that Adam does of the creatures. You know, Genesis 2.19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now in the Bible, the act of naming is the act of expressing authority over something or someone. So, for instance, in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, names Daniel and his three friends. He changes their names and gives them Babylonian names. He's expressing authority over them. That's what Adam is doing here over the animal world. He's also doing more. See, naming involves a level of understanding. See, when we name something in some sense, it's the beginning of the scientific enterprise. See, Adam demonstrates that he has the beginning of an understanding of their functions what the animals are there for. It's interesting then that when Satan comes to tempt the man and the woman, he enters the garden as a serpent, that as a creature that God has made, and that Adam is required to demonstrate his understanding of and his authority over him. Adam is to exercise God's mastery and dominance over the serpent, but instead, of course, he surrenders his authority to the serpent. And with that, he becomes not the ruler, but the one who struggles now to survive. And the good news expressed in Genesis 3.15 is that God would send the seed of the woman, who is, of course, the Messiah, Jesus, and he would come to crush the head of the serpent and then rightfully reclaim all that was lost in the fall. The authority of the Messiah was the authority that Adam had lost. And so the command to rule the works of God's hands is not lost but has been redeemed by Christ. And according to Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam, the new federal head of a human race. So whatever the Bible means by ruling and reigning with Christ in eternity, it must be related to the original plan that was given to Adam, rule over the works of God's hands. Still, how do we understand that? It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfield, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with one man whom he promises three things. First, he promises to bless him. So that would mean that God promises to allow all of his resources as God 
to be there for the benefit of Abraham. That itself is a mouthful. You know, second, he promises to make of him a great nation, more than can be numbered. And third, God promises to give Abraham and his offspring a land flowing with blessings, milk and honey. And of course, in the Old Testament, this is the land of Israel. And the descendants of Abraham are called upon to take the land that God has promised them and then to exercise dominion over it by driving pagan worshipers from it and rule that land as representatives of God. It's the drama of the book of Joshua. It's the drama of the kingdom of David. It's the struggle to rule and reign over that which God had promised to them. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what God promises us in eternity. Now, there are those of us who have wondered whether or not this really refers to actual real estate. And to some, that sounds, you know, crassly commercial. It's kind of like a land baron grabbing land. Well, before we come to that conclusion, let me suggest we reread an often neglected passage from the First Testament. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Jeremiah has been prophesying that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians because of the sins of Israel. The 32nd chapter of the book happens during the 10th year of Zedekiah, which would have been less than one year until the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem. So at that time, the Babylonian armies are already surrounding the city, and the city is under siege. The future looks grim. It even looks hopeless. Death and destruction, dissolution of the nation lies before them. So with that in mind, let me read Jeremiah 32, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Now, Anathoth was about five kilometers north of Jerusalem, and no doubt at that very moment that Jeremiah is buying the property. The boots of the Babylonian soldiers might have been standing on that ground at that moment. So from the perspective of what was happening, this purchase was ludicrous. In less than a year, and Jeremiah knew this would happen because he was a prophet, in less than a year, Judah would be taken into exile and the land would be deserted. Why buy that which in effect is worthless? It's like buying, you know, as the adage says, swampland in Florida. But the rest of Jeremiah 32 is an interesting chapter indeed. God reiterates to Jeremiah that his anger is provoked against Jerusalem for her sins. But in a time in the future, Israel will return to their land. And in that time, says verse 44, God says, fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. See, God will restore their fortunes. Nothing is going to be lost. In the end, God's going to redeem everything. You know, at first reading, one can be excused for thinking that this relates entirely to the return of the exiles and the resettlement of the land under Ezra and under Nehemiah. That is, until you read the next chapter of Jeremiah. There God promises that a branch, Messiah, will rule in Jerusalem and execute justice, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. See, the vision of Jeremiah buying a field points to a time when Messiah will rule over everything. That is, when men and women will take possession of houses and lands. See, do you remember Jesus' parable of the ten minas? It's in Luke 19. There he promises to one who is faithful that in days when the king receives his kingdom, that the faithful servant will be put in charge over 10 cities and another over five cities. You know, as strange as that language sounds to us, 
When we think about the new heavens and the new earth as real physical place where citizens who have real physical bodies that live somewhere, I mean, we must think of houses and lands and properties and administration of things. I often ask a question to people I I teach about heaven by asking, you know, that if Adam and Eve would never have sinned, would we still have needed laws? You know, invariably, everyone would answer by saying, no, no, we wouldn't need laws. But then I challenge that way of thinking. I say, you know, in an unfallen world, wouldn't we still have to have laws that tell us, well, for instance, on which side of the road to drive and how to order society in such a way that's of maximum benefit to everyone? See, here's the problem. See, when we think about laws and governance, the majority of us think only of those laws that are put in place to restrain evil. Now, clearly, those laws will forever be unnecessary in the world to come. But in the world that will soon be revealed, laws will be enacted not to restrain evil or as a system of merit to gain favor, but an ordering of society that maximizes the glory of God and increases the good of all of its citizens. So what does ruling and reigning with Christ look like then? Well, if you go back to a verse that we often quote at Christmas, here's a little secret. See, according to Isaiah 9 verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, as time goes on, the government of Christ is not static, it increases. Does that sound strange to you? Let me take you to Daniel 7. In in verse 21, we're told that the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then later in verse 27 of that same chapter, an explanation is given. It says, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey them. You know, pictures should be forming now. It's, It's this. Jesus progressively expands his government through his people in which all the dominions are governed and serve and obey Christ through his governance of all people. So one more image. I'll pull it all together. In Revelation 21, John gives us a vision of the holy city. The new Jerusalem has come down from heaven to earth. So let me read the entire text there from verses 22 to 26. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring the glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations. Please revisit this again. Get the sense that the earth will be filled with cultures and various governors and kings that govern over it. And they come into the city and they bring the best of their culture and they lay it in honor before King Jesus at his feet. For all they accomplished and did, they did to honor him. And over time, as their cultures develop, they keep striving for more ways to honor and glorify the one who sits on the throne in the Lamb. So I see a heaven that has culture and accomplishments and inventions and splendor and unique people groups all to the glory of God. And is that it? Are we only to govern one another? None, I think not. According to Randy Elkhorn, and he comments on the expansion of the government of the Messiah found in Isaiah 9, verse 7. Elkhorn says, we are called upon as the saints to expand into previously ungoverned territories. Another is to create new territories. And so Elkhorn suggests that this could be planets and so forth. Well, does that sound like science fiction? 
Listen to Erwin Lutzer, who was a longtime pastor of the famous Moody Bible Church in Chicago. He said the discovery of the immensity of the universe does not diminish, but actually magnifies man's role in the cosmos. For if Christ is to rule over all things and we are to reign with him, then we will be ruling over all the galaxies, affirming Christ's lordship over the whole universe. Or listen to Dr. Joseph Dillo. He said, reflecting on, on Psalm 8, verse 6, that God had given man dominion over the works of his hands, which in that psalm includes all the works of his fingers. He says the sun, the moon, and the stars. And Dillo then says, the future kingdom embraces the entire created order, that this was to be placed in subjection to man. Clearly, whatever we think of heaven, please don't think of endless vacations living on the edge of a golf course and sipping fruity drinks and eating caviar for eternity. Think of a physical life with a physical world where we worship and glorify God and that God himself gives his followers visionary tasks that fill our hearts with joy. See, I end this section on ruling with Christ with these words. Luke 16, verse 10 records Jesus as saying, one who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Please see, there is a connection between what we do now and what we will do in eternity. We are now learning to rule with Christ, and we will rule with him in eternity. Playing harps on a bland, lifeless cloud forever? I think not. Ruling and reigning with Christ for all of eternity? Ha! I can hardly wait for that to begin. John, I found your message just fascinating because what in essence you're telling us, there's things to be accomplished. When we get to heaven, there's things that are going to be done. We're going to be purposeful. Yeah, all that, all that language of, as I had said, about, you know, playing golf and sipping fruit drinks, you know, that we need to abandon that. But, you know, here's the, here's the Ben, there's something wonderful that happens in a Christian's heart when we begin to think about these are the things I believe that God has for me to do in heaven. I want to accomplish them. And at that point in time, you know, we, we put our hopes in those things that God has for us to do for all of eternity. And we build this sanctified imagination within ourselves that says, I will be doing, and I will be accomplishing, and I will give myself to, and then we do it all to the glory of God. And out of that comes this, this hopefulness. Instead of a, a static eternity, we get this dynamic, pulsating eternity that's, uh, that's filled with all the things that the Bible speaks about. Uh, there's something to look forward to. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth in Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth in Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth in Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today.